You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Psalm 139. I'm going to read the first 16 verses for you. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. In other words, God is always aware of everything that we do. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all together. You hem in me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. In other words, there's nowhere you can go where God is not there with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Good morning and welcome to Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I am proud to tell you that uh, for the last 38 years or so, and for uh, Lord willing, the next 38 years, or maybe 39 because i got to beat James by one, um, that City on a Hill is proudly pro-life, that we believe in the value of the unborn human life as well as the born human life, not because of political reasons or social reasons, but because we believe that all life, regardless of race, regardless of color or gender, or even religion for that matter, is valuable just in and of itself and worthy of dignity for the singular reason, hear this, that all human life is created uniquely apart from the rest of creation in that we're created in God's image. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are above all the rest of creation, unique because we are the only part of creation spelled out in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 who are made in the image of God. And this conviction is woven throughout the fabric of both the Old Testament and the New Testament and ultimately culminates in the resurrection which is obviously the central focus of our faith, the resurrection. It it culminates in the resurrection because Christ's resurrection points to the ultimate value of human life in that God promises in the future to raise us, renew us, restore us, not just spiritually, but bodily. In other words, God has made you unique and valuable, not just because of your personality or your spirit, 
or your emotions, but because of your physical body as well. Your human body matters a great deal to God. He's the author and the creator of it. It is unique. It is, it is not, just, not just something that you are in. It's not that you're a spirit that lives in a body. It's that you are a spirit and a body. That your body is uniquely you. The only time you will actually be apart from your body is that time between death and resurrection. Think about that for a moment. Your life and all of eternity after the resurrection, you will exist in your body. Your body matters a great deal. This morning, for this this morning that we're celebrating, that we're thinking about, rather than talking about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and talking about the Imago Dei, which is just the real like kind of you know, highfalutin way of saying the image of God. Um, I want to do something a little bit different. I feel like I talk and kind of hit on the image of God quite a bit in my preaching and teaching. It's something that is really foundational uh, for me academically as well. Uh, and so I don't want to do that this morning. I want to take a little bit of a different approach for our time. I want to look at a couple of passages that are often used by pro-choice advocates to try to support abortion from the Bible. And I want us to consider these passages, what the historical context is, what they teach, what the text honestly is conveying, for us to weigh it out, for us to evaluate it, and and determine whether or not there is a case to be made for the pro-choice position within a biblical framework. Now, I understand that some people take a pro-choice position for non-biblical reasons, and that's a whole different discussion. But what I want to do is, is evaluate, is there a biblical case to be made for this position? And then as promised, after I'm done with my part, which will be, again, brief, kind of like last week, I'm going to invite up Lori Campbell to the stage, and we're going to have just a discussion about all the great things that they are doing at the Women's Choice Resource Center. Sound good? I want to try to inject some levity into an otherwise heavy discussion, and I want to say up front to you, especially you women, um, that if you have had an abortion before, you need to know, you need to hear from me as the pastor of this church, that you are loved, you are welcome, and you are forgiven in Christ, okay? Uh, and, And we do have actual groups that I'm going to talk about at the end, one of which is Surrendering the Secret where you can go in and actually share uh, the the statistics of women who have had abortions that have never told anyone about them are high, and uh, we want to eliminate that. Anything that brings uh, a sense of shame or guilt in your life, we want you to walk in freedom from that. You have freedom in Christ, and we want to give you a safe place to do that, and so that is available to you. We'll say more a little bit about that at the end. So I want you to hear me say that I'm in that tough position this morning as, as your pastor to talk about abortion for what it really is in the Bible but also maintain a very firm conviction that there is grace here for you, that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ for all sin, uh, including abortion. Amen? Let's talk. What are the passages that people use to try to advocate for a pro-choice position? The first one comes from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. What a dumb foundation. Um, let's Let's just be honest about that. They tried to um, kind of set their, their case down in Exodus chapter 21. So if you have your Bible, uh, you flip to Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. Let me start by saying that this section of Scripture uh, deals with something that we refer to in the academic world as lex talionis. Lex talionis. This is a Latin term that simply means the law of retaliation. So you have heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is lex talionis, okay, the law of retaliation. And essentially, this portion of Exodus, what they're trying to do here, uh, Moses is setting up parameters 
uh, to legally punish people who willfully injure or kill another person in that community while protecting those who accidentally injure or kill a person within that community. In other words, they're seeking to differentiate the difference between willful death and accidental death, willful injury or crime and accidental injury or crime. So for example, if a person were to break into your home and shoot and kill you, the law would prescribe punishment, which is death. Now, just let me as a side note say this, that uh, capital punishment, uh, death penalty, is established in Genesis chapter 9. It may seem like something fundamentally opposite to the sanctity of human life. And what I want you to actually understand this morning is that the death penalty is built on the same grounding as the sanctity of human life. It's built on the assumption that all people are created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, right after Noah gets off the, the ark and all the animals run free and God's like, you can eat them now, right? Super <laughs> scarring moment probably for Moses. Uh, he tells Moses, you may shed the blood of animals, but you may not shed the blood of other humans. And this is what he says in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So because life is created in the image of God, if you take a life, your life now is required of you. It's that valuable. It's that valuable that if you destroy it, you forfeit your own. So understand then what, what Exodus 21 is doing is it's setting up a distinction that if someone breaks into your home and shoots and kills you, they should be punished. However, if someone breaks into your home and wields a weapon with the intent to harm you and you shoot at them and injure or kill them, we would hope that the law would differentiate between the two or be able to differentiate. That the, that the motivation behind both of these things is different. Or that if you were to willfully run someone over with your car versus accidentally hitting somebody, that you would hope the law would be able to distinguish there's a difference here. There, there's, so one should be punished differently than the other. We want laws that can do that. So, so this is what it's doing. It's trying to make distinctions like this. And when we get to verses 22 through 25, we have a scenario where the injury is involving an unborn child. Read with me starting in verses 22. It says, when men fight together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. So pause for a moment. This is describing a scenario wherein two men get into a fight and they are so out of control that somehow a pregnant woman is caught in the middle of it and is hit by one of them. This law is saying if her, if, if her child comes out and no one is harmed, then, then the man, the, the father and the husband can assign a fine to the person who hit her and that's it. Case closed. It is done. Okay. Um, However, verse 23 continues, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You can see at the end here, lex talionis at play. And I want to make an important note here for a minute. This may uh, shock some of you because you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for tooth your probably whole life if you've grown up in church. Um, this is not a literal law. It's not literally saying an eye for a literal eye. The point of Lex Talionis is that the offense 
uh, should be equal to the penalty that is being prescribed to it. So if I burn your house down, you, I, you can't just like, you know, burn my mailbox. Like that, they're not equal. It's house for house, right? Um, <laughs> this is a, a penalty that is requiring equal value to the offense. This passage is used by the freedom from religion to support abortion. Now, you may ask, how do they do that? That doesn't make any sense. They would argue that this passage is saying that injury or death only applies to the woman. So if the baby dies, a pregnant woman is hit, the baby dies, but the woman is okay, then the man only pays the fine. But if the woman dies, then the man's life is forfeit. And so they read it that way, and they say because there's a difference in penalties between injuring the mom and the unborn child, it seems like the woman's life, who is alive and out of the womb, is more valuable than the baby who is inside of the womb. Now, uh, the problem with this is that it's just completely incompatible with the Hebrew. Uh, the, the language dictates very clearly that this is discussing a plurality of injury for both mother and for child. The fact that you have to wait for the baby to come out of her before you can evaluate whether someone has been injured or not is pretty clear. Why are we waiting if that's the case? If the woman's fine, regardless of what's going on in her womb, pay the fine and move on. But the text is very clear that there is a waiting period for the child to come out and then we are evaluating in plurality whether any of them, plural, mother or child, is harmed. If that is the case, then punishment of equal value is laid down. So it just doesn't work. This is a silly passage to try to hang out there and, and say, well, look, you know, the, there's difference in value of life. There's not. It's simply not true. So on the basis of Exodus 21, 22 through 25, we would say there is no case to be made for the pro-choice position. But let's look at a second one, because I think the second one is probably the more popular one. This comes from Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. And this passage, admittedly, let me say up front, is a very strange passage, okay? It's going to be a very weird thing for you to read with your Western postmodern eyes, all right? Um, there are some strange things going on here that were for Israel. They're not applied to the church today. But does this passage really make a case for abortion? That's the question that we need to answer. Let's read it. I'm going to do my best to break it down. Start Numbers 5. We'll start in verses 11 through 15. Read with me. It says, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, i.e., has an affair. If a man lies with her sexually, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her. Let's stop for a minute and break this down. You're going, what in the world is this? Um, so this is describing an instance when a man suspects that his wife has had an affair despite the fact that there are no witnesses to, to support this claim. 
For one reason or another, he believes that she has been unfaithful. It says a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he uh, suspects infidelity. He is to take her to the priest with, a, with an offering, and there is this whole ritual thing that's about to take place that we're going to talk through. But let me just say up front, you're going to be tempted to read this passage through, again, your Western eyes. You're going to think... So all the husband has to do is just suspect she's cheating and become jealous, and then he can take her to the priest? This just seems really unfair. And, and let me just clarify here for a moment that at this point in time in the world, in this region of the world, marital fidelity was taken extremely seriously. You, you would not just throw out some spurious accusation to your spouse for infidelity. This was an extremely serious accusation. In fact, if either the husband or the wife commit adultery and there is witnesses or it is provable, they're just put to death. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. They don't even talk, they don't even pray about it. Death, right? <laughs> adultery was, and, and hear me when I say this, still is a very serious offense. Marriage is a covenant. The Bible teaches that it is a covenant between two people and between God himself. It's a very serious covenant that we enter into. It shouldn't be entered into flippantly, but with much prayer. So understand this. At this time in the world, to accuse your spouse of infidelity was a very serious claim. It's not just something you throw around. Now, here's what Numbers 5 prescribes in this event. The husband and the wife go to the priest. Here's what the priest is to do. Verse 15, he is to take a grain offering for jealousy, and he is to place that grain offering in her hands. So she holds the grain offering in her hands. Verses 16 and 17, and then the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. So he takes a big jug, he puts holy water in it, water that was blessed in the tabernacle. Uh, he takes dust from the ground in the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies. He sprinkles the dust in the water. And it makes this sort of bitter water concoction is what it is referred to as. Then look at verses 19 through 22. It says, Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some other man other than your husband has lain with you, then... Let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, Yahweh make you a curse and an oath among your people that when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away and the woman shall say, amen, amen. What did we just read? <laughs> Let's break it down. So... She has the grain offering of jealousy in her hand. He has the water that brings the curse, which is, by the way, nothing more than water with dust in it, okay? Which is basically the equivalent of, like, East Fort Worth water. Just regular, just water with dust in it. Um, and she is to drink the water, okay? She is to drink this concoction. And she is to say, before she drinks it, she is to take a vow before the priest and before God saying, if I am not guilty, let the water pass through me. But if I am guilty and I have committed adultery, let my stomach swell and my thigh fall away. We'll deal with that in a moment. Um, 
Let's deal with it, actually. Let's just talk about it. The thigh falling away. What does that mean? Did her leg come off? Um, some translation will say, like, her thigh sags, right? Um, it's a very strange wording. It's unique in the Old Testament. We don't see this phrasing anywhere else. It likely means that she becomes incapable of having children. The thigh in Old Testament theology is often associated with the sexual organs because it's the closest part of the body to the sexual organ, both for males and females, by the way. It's used that way for, for men as well. So the thigh likely is in connection with the sexual organ, and it's, it's likely saying that this curse renders her unable to sexually reproduce. Seems pretty straightforward at this point. So how does this, how does this get brought into the, the realm of abortion? It has to do with a translation problem. I just read from the ESV. A lot of other translations take the same approach. There is one particular translation, the NIV, which by the way, I think is a great translation that renders this text a little differently. Verse 22 in the NIV, it says, may this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. Now that sounds different. That is different than becoming sterile. That sounds a little abortion-y, right? Not really the best translation, but it does sound that way. And again, the NIV, I think, is a great translation. It does a lot of things really well. I just think they got this one wrong. The, the Hebrew literally says the thigh falls away. And given the fact that the thigh is often associated with the sexual organs, this is likely just talking about the reproductive organs no longer working the way that they were intended. And understand this, this is a serious deal. I mean, especially in this time, the people of God deeply hoped that the Abrahamic promise would, would be fulfilled in their own life, to see their offspring multiplied greatly, not only for pragmatic reasons and that you, there's bartering power and you have manpower for farming and for all kinds of other things, but, but just the, the spiritual blessing of children. This was a horrible thought in this time to be made sterile. So it is fitting then, understand this, that it's called a curse. So understand this. This is not talking about a priest administering an abortion. I've heard people say that. Well, in Numbers 5, did you know that a priest administers an abortion? No, he doesn't. That's not what's being described at all. First of all, it's not the procedure itself that's causing the swelling. It's just water and dust. It doesn't do anything to her. It's not the procedure, but the curse that she is willingly entering into as she is lying potentially to God about what she's done. And even then, the curse is only bad for her if she's actually lying. If she hasn't had the affair, if she's innocent, she drinks the water, she sits back, she relaxes, and she looks at her husband like, we're going to talk about this when we get home. <laughs> right? Her husband looks like an absolute fool. But even in the instance that she is guilty and she has had an affair and there has been no witnesses and her stomach swells and she is able at that point no longer to have kids, it's not an abortion. It's a curse that affects her in a way that no longer allows her to walk in the covenant promises of her people. Either way, on the basis of Numbers 5, 11 through 31, we would say there is no case to be made for a pro-choice position. Truthfully, let me just say this. I'll wrap this up and then I'm gonna call Lori up to the stage. The whole notion that you can be obedient in the Christian faith and advocate for abortion is an extremely, listen to this, new idea, okay? I want you to get your mind around that. The topic of abortion itself, not a new idea, but that you can be obediently Christian and advocate for a pro-choice reality is not an old idea at all, it's very new. Because historically, get this, the church has been always pro-life. 
The actual topic itself is not new. This has been an issue for a very long time, and the church has been extremely consistent and clear about the immorality of abortion. Let me give you a few examples, just so you're not taking my word for it. One of the earliest writings that we have in the Christian faith is referred to as the Didache. It's just the Greek word for teaching. It's dated to the first century. It was likely written and read by the apostles. That's what history tells us, at least. It's not in the Bible, but it is an extremely important historical document, and it speaks to abortion. Second chapter, it says, the second commandment of the teaching, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not seduce boys. There's some practical application there too for our modern day. Uh, You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not practice magic. You shall not use uh, potions. You shall not procure an abortion nor destroy a newborn child. This is the first century. This is before John the Apostle has died. Clear as day. Not a new issue. Letter of Barnabas, written somewhere between 70 and 132. So again, potentially before John the Apostle has died. You shall not slay the child by procuring abortion, nor again shall you destroy it after it is born. So in this letter, it makes it very clear that the child is a child both in the womb and outside of the womb. Both instances, Letter of Barnabas says, don't kill the child. Toward the end of the second century, Tertullian One of the well-known church fathers, he says, in our case, a murder being once for all forbidden, we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb, while as yet the human being derives blood from the other parts of the body for its sustenance. Did you hear that? Not just your body, your choice. The baby needs the body in order to develop because it is a life. To hinder a birth is merely a speedier man-killing Nor does it matter whether you take a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. That is a man which is going to be one. You have the fruit already in its seed. That comes from Tertullian's Apology, chapter 9, verse 8. You can't really get any clearer than this, and we haven't even left the second century. We could read Athenagoras, Hippolytus, Basil the Great, Jerome, John Chrysostom, the Apostolic Constitutions. The church history has settled this. It's not even a discussion. It's crystal clear. So here's what this means. Let me just say this pastorally to you. It means practically, if you're going to advocate for a pro-choice position as a Christian, at least be honest about what you're doing. At least be honest about your position. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I think the Bible and 2,000 years of Christian history is wrong. Be honest about that. Say that, right? Don't try to make a case, though, from the Bible, because that's foolishness. It's, it's not going, it doesn't, it's not there. There's no argument to be made. Life comes from one source, God himself, and that life begins really before conception. We always say life begins at conception. I mean, a biblical theology would tell us that it actually begins before conception. God said to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. So either God is lying about this or life begins and has value before we are ever aware of it. Amen? I want to call to the stage if you would help me give a warm welcome to Lori Campbell. Yeah. I have a microphone for you here. There you go. I'm going to pull my chair up just a little bit closer. So, Lori, I, um, I obviously know you, and several of the staff knows you, but as we begin here, why don't you just tell the church who you are and what your role is at the Women's Choice Resource Center. Okay. Good morning. My name is Lori Campbell. My title is Executive Director of Women's Choice Resource Center. Um, we are a pregnancy resource center in East Fort Worth. We've been there for 29 years, and we 
uh, serve our community. Wonderful. And tell me a little bit about what is the Women's Choice Resource Center? So our um, mission statement is to value and protect the preborn. Mm. Our um, vision is a world where every preborn child is cherished and given an opportunity for abundant life. And um, I was just thinking about that as I was preparing. We're still not done. I mean, even in Texas, there are preborn children who are not valued and given the opportunity for abundant life, so we still have a lot of work to do. So true, so true. So one of the reasons that I brought you here today was because I feel like there is this sort of dissonance within evangelicalism that says, I am an advocate for pro-life because every now and again I might post a Bible verse or something on social media. And again, I want to just, I want you to hear me say, I appreciate that. That's informative. It, it does kind of stake your claim in, in a public realm. So that's not a bad thing. But that's not really engaging in the fight for the preborn. Uh, one of the reasons that I love the Women's Choice Resource Center so much is that it provides multiple pathways for people who are working full-time, people who are working part-time or even retired to give their time sacrificially to really make a difference in the front lines, in the trenches of this fight. And so I would love for you to share a little bit of like if, you know, the people here in this church, let's say, hey, I want to be more involved. What does that look like at the Women's Choice Resource Center? Well, there's so much that you could do. We do free pregnancy tests. We do ultrasounds. Um, we do parent education classes. And then we have peer counselors, people who are are just trained to talk to the women and the men that we meet. Um, all of this will provide, count, uh, provide training for you. Um, we give a lot of referrals, um, just a lot of different things that we do. But um, we have two paid positions that we're looking for. I need a full-time registered nurse, and I also need another administrative assistant. So if you're interested in either one of those paid positions, come back and see us, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But volunteer positions, we need men. Um, in 2021, we started actually intentionally with men in our um, clinic being prepared to talk to the guys that come in with the girls. And so we have a group of trained men, we call them Real Dads Coaches, and they are there in a room designated for guys. And so when a guy accompanies a girl into the center to get a pregnancy test or a sonogram or whatever, that coach is trained and ready to go approach him and talk to him and see if he would like to have a conversation about you know what he's feeling about the pregnancy and all of that. And it's, um, it's really beautiful because he's able to um, really empower this man that has been told all of his life and may be currently being told the lie that his voice doesn't matter, but he's able to tear down that stronghold and, and just really speak life into him and empower him to speak life to that girlfriend and to that maybe wife. Um, and just share with him that he has a right to want this baby and to want to parent this child. And all he has to do is make that, that desire known and it could change everything if yeah. he'll just talk to her about it. So awesome. that is one position that we need. We need some men and bilingual would be great. Um, we need some spiritual advocates. We kind of wear two hats when we're talking with the women. So. Um, we need people, women, to 
sit down with the, with the clients and be able to pray with them, be able to share the gospel with them, um, and just talk about, talk about spiritual matters and even apply scripture to the situation that yeah. she's in. And then we need um, people who will get maybe a little bit more into the nitty gritty um, as a female to female, just talking about the ways that we can come alongside her, um, all of the programs that we offer her, talking a little bit more medically, kind of about um, abortion and what that really looks like and what the law is and um, what her options are as far as you know, she can parent or she can place for adoption. And we're all very trained about how to talk to her about those things. And we would train our volunteers to do that as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. So explain, you know, a young woman comes in, she's pregnant. What would draw her to your facility? How do, how do you guys market yourselves? And, and what's, the, what's the rundown there? So we have a Google ad. And actually, we have several. I won't get into that. But some of them are... Um, done by national organizations that then feed women to our center because of their location. So there's national call banks and national um, Google ads that when a girl calls into that or responds to that, then they'll find out if she's near us and then they'll send her to us. So, but then we also run one ourselves and it's marketed to women and men shopping for an abortion. So we have two different, you know, sets of social media because our messaging is very different. Um, for you guys, you know, it's all about saving babies and salvations and woohoo, you know, we give diapers and, you know, we celebrate life and, and all of that. But to her, um, and to him, they're in a very vulnerable place where they're not really thinking about that baby. They're, they're in a, and we all get this way when we're in crisis. We get very self-absorbed and we're thinking about our circumstances and how this is ruining my life and this is not convenient and this is, you know, not what I planned and all of that. So our marketing is to her and to him and how they're thinking. And so, yeah, so they see the Google ad and they call us or they make an appointment online and come in. And how many, how many of those do you see come in with the intent of having an abortion and then seeing their minds changed? I mean, certainly not all of them, but, right. but I mean, is there some hope there? Is, there? is that working well? Absolutely. It's, it's typically about 80% will choose life. Yeah. That is amazing. Now, there was one year, and I don't recall how many years ago, it was pre-pandemic, it was BC, before COVID. Um, <laughs> the, the, there was a gala y'all we did, and you had, I think, like a picture representation of every child that was born as a result of the ministry there. Um, roughly, you may not know the exact number, but, but how many lives have actually been saved through the Women's Choice Resource Center ministry? I do have it. Um, so through the end of December, so December yeah. 2022, um, we have confirmed 2,374 babies have been saved from abortion. This is what it looks like to fight for the preborn. Uh, this is what, th these are real, this is real data. Right? This, isn't just, this isn't just theory anymore. This is actually dealing with real people 
having real hard conversations. One of the things that I love about this ministry so much, as, I, as I've heard her speak through the years, we've, we've been partners with them well before I was the pastor of this church. I think well before I was even on staff at this church, um, which is coming up on 15 years in July, believe it or not. Um, it's been a long time that we've been partners. And, and one of the things that I love is our commitment to being a safe place for people to let go of their secrets. That's a part of our mission statement at, at City on a Hill, becoming a safe place for people to let go of their secrets and providing a safe process for them to grow in emotional and spiritual maturity in Christ. That emphasis of safety, which involves uh, you know, an environment where, where I'm able to let go of things that I would otherwise feel a great amount of shame or guilt over, is extremely consistent with what you guys are doing. Because to come in with the intent to have an abortion, uh, it's, it's probably something that they have not talked to many people about. And, and to be able to not only verbalize that, but be met with such grace and love and led away from that decision to actually choose life is really remarkable. And so it's such a consistent ministry with our personal mission here at this church. It's just a kind of an extension of it in one very specific field. So. Uh, can I mention Please. one like perfect volunteer position that would be more seasonal? Yeah. All of those things that I mentioned before, we really need a four hour a week. Am I saying that right? Four hour a week commitment from you. But there's something else, a very new program that we're developing called Making Life Disciples. And just as you were saying, this is so led of the spirit because we do feel like you guys are such a perfect partner. You're very closely located to us, so geographically it makes sense. But we kind of look at ourselves as um, a triage or an emergency room situation, and you guys refer to yourselves often as a hospital church. Yeah, yeah. And we, um, we come, we, we share the gospel all the time. I have that number there. I think you can see it. So we've had, we've shared the gospel 8,000 times and we've seen over 1,900 men and women come to Christ. And someone asked me the other day, well, what happens to all those people? Do they get discipled? Really? We're not, we're not set up to do that. We try really hard and we do the best that we can and we have Bible study that we offer the girls and you know, we try to, t to stay in contact with them and, do the, and we invite them to church, we do all the things. But the church is called to disciple people. Yeah. And so we're developing this program where we would train you, it's 12 weeks. If Reagan Barasa is here, she can testify. So it's great training, right? Real easy, 12 weeks. It would be great if you, you could do it all together, you know, on a night of the week here, or you could do it by Zoom or whatever. But you would be trained to talk to men and women who have contemplated abortion, might still be toying with the idea. That takes a very special set of skills to talk to them. Um, but then what would happen is if we run across men and women in our center who say, you know, I'm really interested in getting involved in a church or I, I, need, I need some more, I need discipleship or I pray to receive Christ but I don't, I don't know what happens next or I'm a believer but, you know, I'm, I haven't been to church in years and I'm not growing in Christ. We would say, well, we have some, some coaches that we would love to put you in contact with. Would you be interested in having a coach and if they said yes then we would call if you guys if you guys had a list of trained people we we're gonna call on Reagan as one of them 
we would call you guys and say, hey, we have a candidate here. If it's a girl, we would, we would call for a woman. If it's a man, we would call for a man. And we would set a meeting for you guys to come and meet together for the first time in this center. Takes all the pressure off for them, takes all the pressure off for you. We're there in case, you know, you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say. Then we're there, you meet, you connect, you exchange contact information, and then that relationship can kind of take on a life of its own. Yeah. And you become their discipler, you become their coach. And um, we'll still do all the things that we were gonna do for him or her anyway. We'll still have the education classes, we'll still do diapers, they can still come to Bible study. It's not like we're hands off after that, but there's this added layer, this very added needed layer of discipleship. So that's just another opportunity. One of the things, last, last question or, or thing to talk about, maybe a couple more, we'll see. We'll push the time a little. Um, one of, the, one of the, the arguments I hear from the other side is that um, Christians have a tendency to be pro-life. They want to prevent abortion from taking place, but then they give no care after the baby's born or to the mother or whatever. Can you speak a little bit to, you mentioned diapers, you mentioned some of the very practical needs that, that mothers have, the ways in which you continue to minister to moms. Yeah, if, if anyone ever says that to you, <laughs> they, they've never been in a crisis pregnancy center because the way that we do it, it's, it's not unique. This is done all over the country. Crisis pregnancy centers like ours are not just you know pro-birth. We're very pro-life. And, um, you know, many, many, many of us are evangelical and we understand that we can't just sit before a woman or a man and say, you can't do this, this is wrong. You know, you're bringing your death and destruction. And, you know, and then when she chooses life, say, okay, see ya, that was great. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just ridiculous that we would do that. So we, um, we're in a very low income area. Um, so, but everybody does this, all of the pregnancy centers do this. So we have diapers, so we have women who are, we have vetted and um, know that they just need help with their diapers, they're expensive. So they can come once a week and pick up diapers. Um, we have education classes, there are, you know, <laughs> So many of our clients, they've never, they were not parented well. They have, so one of their biggest fears is, I was not parented well, how am I gonna do this? Yeah. So we have parenting classes for them, just practical things on how to give a baby a bath, all the way up to you know discipline and things like that. Um, so we're just, we're just coming alongside them in any way that we can. We're very, very well, educated on all of the resources that are available in our community and we make lots of referrals for them and so you know just anything that we can do to help them we do praise god uh how can how can someone help you financially if they don't have the time but they're like look we want to give a little over and above the regular tithe every sunday um how, how can they in all in all seriousness how can they do that because this is a ministry that we want to see supported so we have a, a website for partners, so it's a little confusing, but the website for partners is called prebornfriends.org, and it's very easy. You, there's, you'll see very easily that there's a place to donate there, but it's, there's also um, just pictures of our babies, which we have out back, just um, 
pictures of babies that have been saved in our center. Um, there's all kinds of information on that site for you as well, but there's a very easy place to find to donate. And then we have our gala coming up. If yes. someone, if, if, if a table host, we have table hosts sprinkled through here. Um, if anybody invites you to come to the gala, it's a great way to come find out more about what we're doing, kind of get a vision um, for where we've been, where we're going, and um, have a free dinner, and you can get involved financially at that time as well. Raise your hand if you've hosted a table before here, just out of a show of hands. I know there's, there's definitely some here for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Good, 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 yeah. So let me say this, uh, just as a kind of a closing thought, um, again, so that you're hearing this from me here at City on a Hill. I can't speak for other churches, but, but when we say that we are pro-life, that, um, that we value life both prior to birth and after birth, one of the ways that, that we practically work that out is by uh, helping, serving, uh, supporting ministries like this one. This is a remarkable ministry. The work that they are doing is incredible. Um, on the flip side of that, we, I never want to leave you with thinking that all the women that have had abortions are just sort of like lost causes. That's not true. We love you. We have surrendering the secret that's beginning. We want to provide a place for you to heal, to surrender that secret, to uh, no longer feel the guilt and shame. It's led by people who have walked in your steps. You are loved here. You are not a half-valued person. You are not a scarlet-lettered individual. You are fully welcomed and loved into this church by God's grace, just like all of us, okay? Um, this is how we deal with this topic, is by being very honest about it and also being very radically unashamed of God's grace for broken people. And there are tremendous stories that I have heard, even this week, uh, of, of just God's redemptive power to come out of that and feel loved and whole, because you are loved and whole in Christ. I wanna close this time um, by praying for Lori and for some of her associates who are here with her this morning. I wanna tell you that as a pastor, and other pastors and people in ministry can uh, attest to this, there is a weight that falls on you. And it's really hard to describe, but, but it's just a very burdensome feeling. Um, and, and with that comes a lot of spiritual warfare. The enemy does not like to see what they are doing uh, because it is just a big spiritual middle finger to him, okay? It is. They are charging the gates of hell like Jesus commanded us to do. And, and, and so I want to pray specifically for them, for their families, for their children, uh, for their minds, for their heart. Uh, they are under tremendous, tremendous warfare, I imagine, probably every day of your life. And, uh, and so we want you to feel uh, not only welcomed and loved, but, but cared for here as well. So I'm going to pray, and if you would, just as I'm praying, pray for uh, these ladies here up front as well. Be sure to go out and talk with them. If you have questions, they have a booth sitting right outside. Um, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for Lori and her incredible team of people at the Women's Choice Resource Center. God, I pray for your blessing and your protection to fall on every corner of that ministry, on every person engaged in that ministry, for every woman that walks through that door and every man that walks through that door, that they would sense the very real presence of your Holy Spirit, uh, that they would sense the, the, the sweetness of your grace and mercy and love. 
Uh, God, I, I pray that, that you would protect Lori and, and her associates and their families and their children, uh, their spouses, uh, Lord, their minds. The enemy seeks to devour and destroy. The enemy does not like the kind of work that they are doing. Uh, God, but we believe that uh, your power is greater. And so would you just protect them? Would you surround them? Would you hold them in your hands and, and keep them from the evil one as they continue to be obedient to your charge, to proclaim the gospel and make disciples uh, in, in this really unique way, uh, to proclaim captives set free, uh, the good news of Jesus to these women who, who probably had no idea what they were walking into, but by divine appointment came to hear um, and see. Would you give them and grant them belief when they hear the gospel? That, that this time next year or, or five years from now, that, that those numbers of, of lives saved and, and lives that have come to the faith would be doubled and tripled and just exponentially grown. Um, that, that they would be seen as a, a beacon of hope and light on the east side of Fort Worth. God, we love these people. Protect them and love them. Care for them. Increase them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Give her one more round of applause. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for being here. Uh, I hope this has been informative. I hope it has been uh, maybe a little bit challenging, but challenging is good. It's how we grow. Uh, if you have any questions at all and would like to speak with them more after service, there is a booth right out there. If you want to hear this again, you can either, we obviously have one more service. This is also being streamed online, and so uh, send it to friends and family members who maybe have questions about this. Next week, we start 1 John, Under Construction Begins. I'm very excited to begin that with you. It's going to be an amazing time. Um, night of worship, February 5th. Mark your calendar. We'll be taking the Lord's Supper together. God bless you. We'll see you next week.